Hola, this is Lorena Junco Margain, and I'm so excited for this journey. We decided to launch this podcast to share my story with the hope that you could connect the dots of your life and truly be on your way. Today on On My Way, we have an incredible story of a mother's strength, a daughter's perseverance, and a journey of emotional healing that you won't believe. Lorena sits down with Isabella and her daughter, Ella. Isabella shares her story of immigrating to the United States under dangerous circumstances and how this has made her the person she is today. She also shares her medical story and moving through emotions of fear, shame, and the unknown. Now to today's episode. Hello, my friends. Hola, mis amigos. We're back today with two very special people that will be very vulnerable together, mom and daughter. And please take a moment, take a deep breath and do know that this session will be a very heartfelt one. We have had some episodes where we're learning about building biology on the good materials we should have at home. But right now we're going to talk about the inner side of it. We're going to talk about spirit, about heart, about traditions, about family, religion, and of course, injury. So I want to welcome Isabella. Nice to meet you, Isabella, and thank you for inviting Ella, your beautiful daughter. I would love you introducing yourselves a little bit about your background, and we can start from there. Wonderful. I'm Ella. I'm Isabella's daughter, and I'm 13 years old. And we've been spending all of our time together in the quarantine, and it's been a really great chance to bond and spend a lot of time together. My name is Isabella. I'm Ella's mother. I am originally from South America, and I uh, have been in the United States for a few decades now. And um, here is where I married, had my children, and uh, made a life, a permanent life. Were you born in Austin? Yes, ma'am. I am an Austinite. <laughs> That's great. Mm -hmm. Have you been in the States in Austin since the beginning? When I moved, I was in the Rio Grande Valley and uh, I went to the university there. Then actually did not finish university, became a flight attendant wow. and then eventually moved to Austin. That's amazing. So I share with you, I'm also an immigrant. I'm from Mexico, from Monterrey, Mexico. From what you told me, you're from Argentina. Is that correct? Yes, I'm half Argentine, half Peruvian. Oh, wow. That's amazing. And tell me what brought you to the United States. A civil war in the country we were living in, in Central America. It was Nicaragua. And uh, my mother is Peruvian. My father is Swiss. When the war started, it took us totally by surprise. We actually had to escape on the family plane and take uh, asylum in the Swiss consulate before, uh, for about a month before we were allowed to leave the country. That's very interesting. One of the first episodes was on friendship. One of them is a Nicaraguan friend that also fled with the Sandinista movement. She was only seven years old. So I'm pretty amazed how, I mean, you were blessed to have the resources to, to flee from that war and many people didn't have that opportunity. How did it feel? How old were you? I had uh, just graduated from high school and uh, I was 16 years old. It was very scary. In our home, there was a gentleman who um, worked for us. And at the same time, as it happens in many ha homes in Latin America, 
kind of serves as a guard in the grounds and so on. So no one comes in that shouldn't be there, especially because my parents travel a lot. Uh, at 16, that was scary. When the war started that night, it was guns, everything around our home. And he ended up getting shot that night. And uh, we had to bring him in whenever we could open the door and uh, try to help him out so he could make it till morning. So it was uh, pretty traumatic for being 16 and having been so... Although I, I traveled a lot as a child to and went to school in different countries, boarding schools, I was really in a little shell. I'd been exposed and yet not. So the reality of what the world can be like and on its ugly side was pretty pretty traumatic for me. And it uh, it took me a few years to recover. Yeah, I'm, I'm a child also of uh, post-traumatic stress after being in an environment of drugs and killings and menaces. And so I share that with you. We had to move in four days notice and I was pregnant with my second daughter and it was just horrible. So I can relate to that. What were your parents thinking? Did they have a plan or, or were they just pretty much reactive? You know, that was a big learning experience for me as an adult afterwards. My father actually was not in the country at the time it happened. So it was mom, the ladies who worked for us. And uh, my brother also was in boarding school out of the country. So he was only a ha household of women. My father was in the aviation business. So my father never thought he would get that bad. My mother, on the other hand, thought he could. So in case things got bad, as it happens with countries, because we've been from Argentina, we've been through military coups. We kind of understand how things can get upside down very quickly. The only thing my mother had said is, because they were in aviation, my mother told the people at the airport, hide our plane, wow. hide our plane in the bushes. And that's actually what saved us. Because um, by the time we landed in Managua on the small plane, there were 16 bullet holes on the plane. We were all foreigners. When the uproar happened, a lot, a lot of people become enemies, even though they weren't before. And somehow a lot of people who actually have not done anything to instigate problem become the targets. So that is the one thing mom did. On the other hand, um, it's a story where overnight, literally by the, by the time we arrived in the United States, my family had lost 100% of everything they had. Do you mean like material things? Material, businesses, everything that worked so hard for decades, everything was gone overnight. And now that I'm older and I'm processing, processing <laughs> stuff from back there, it had to be scary because they were in their mid and late 40s when this happened. And they had everything in that country. Everything, uh, even though he was Swiss, he didn't have any holdings in Switzerland or anything. Everything was in the country. So it was pretty much gone overnight. It's pretty fascinating how Latin America has a common thread with having to move to a place where, where you find stability. In my case, the U.S. gave me freedom to not have to worry about who's driving behind me, who sits next to me. It's just, you know, I would be so happy with my stroller on a park. That I couldn't do in Mexico. I think things are quite different. Did you experience the same there? Oh, absolutely. I, um, Ella and my older daughter um, also get very surprised that I wasn't allowed to go by myself anywhere. I either had my yaya 
or the gentleman who did all the driving for my family. But I was who is a, Yaya? My Yaya, <laughs> you know, my Yaya was like my mother too to me. Not not to be disrespectful to my mom in any way, shape, or form, but my Yaya was there with me all the time, twenty four seven. She took care of me. She, you know, she was my chaperone. She was my confidant. Everything, even when I we went on vacation, Yaya was there. So she worked for your family. Yes. Yes. Well, my friends, for you listening out there and you've read my book on the way to Casa Lotus, you will see I talk about Blanca. So Blanca is my yaya. It is very common to grow with a person that is a caregiver. Literally, you grow up with them they till till the day you die. And it's a pretty beautiful, intense relationship because It's two families uniting. So in my case, Blanca and all her family are part of my family. Her sister has taken care of my grandmother till the day she passed. And Blanca's brother is now my maintenance guy. So it is beautiful how you just rely on family. And there's like a unwritten contra contract of trust. Is, do you agree with me? Oh, absolutely. Trust and love. As a matter of fact, I um, I like to use the term family. Yaya was family. She was not blood related, but she was as close as the uh, as the biological family to me. Is she still alive? Because we left in, under such circumstances. Mom had told everyone in the house, with the exception of the gentleman who got shot, told everybody to go home. And she helped facilitate them leaving the city because they lived in rural areas and rural areas were safer. So after we left and I became an adult, I spent 10 years looking for her oh. and I never was able to find her. Well, at least you have a beautiful memory of her and you can still speak to her through your heart and through your mind. I know she's listening. Thank you. She feels and you. And both of my girls have heard a lot of stories about Yaya. That's beautiful. Do you have a, a special story you could share, Ella? I think up until the time that I was eight, I had a form of a yaya. Her name was Lulu, and she, when mom was working, she was with me 100% of the time. With the exception of mom helping me, I think she helped me learn Spanish a lot because um, she spoke very little English, so I would learn to speak to her in Spanish. And it was really cool because that really helped me learn how to speak another language at a young age. And it was also a great way to have another role model adult in the house when mom was at work or running errands or something like that. Yeah, that's fascinating. I think that's how my daughters feel as well. Being born here, do you say I'm American, Argentinian, or are you just American? Do you still feel roots back in South America? How how do you perceive it? Be super honest. I, I still feel roots back in South America and Honestly, mom can tell you I've tried to do so much to try to really get in touch with my more Latina side. I say that I'm from Texas, but my family is from South America. And um, it's really great to be able to have a family that's from another part of the world. And I try to as much as I can to get in touch with that side of me. I agree with you. It's fascinating to learn more cultures, more cuisine, languages. And you know what I learned? It's fascinating. The pride that the U.S. has is I am from Texas. You're not from the United States. Like <laughs> Texas is his, its own country. There's such a, such a strong identity as a Mexican. When they ask me abroad, where are you from? I say Mexico. I don't say Nuevo León. And I've always thought that's a very interesting point that U.S. is so proud of, you know, the 
state's identity. And I think we should all learn a little bit from that. We already made one connection. We're both immigrants. We left through unwanted conditions, but we're safe, we're happy and thriving in a new country, which is the United States. And I know that we both have health issues. So could you share with me how your journey started and what do you think triggered them? I go to my annual physicals, two, usually one with my female doctor and one with my internist. And I schedule them six months apart. I'm kind of a little OCD. After the war, I found out that being organized gives me a sense of, I know what's going to happen. It gives me a sense of safety. I went to my internist and my internist said, certain numbers in your blood are a little high. Let's just keep an eye on them until next uh, year. In the meanwhile, I had begun to feel very tired. My 37-year-old daughter used to joke with me. She used to say, Mom, you are more, you have more energy than I do. How do you do it? How long ago was this? This was in 2016. Arriving at 2017, I began to get tired and began to take naps, which is unheard of for me. By the end of 2017, I was having to nap mid-morning and mid-afternoon. So I knew something wasn't right. So I followed up with my my next visit with the doctor. And the doctor says, your numbers are really high. We need to go ahead and uh, take more tests. So they took like 17 vials of blood. Do you remember your mom being tired or you were too young? I do remember. Uh, I remember she used, yeah, she used to be very almost hyper. And, <laughs> and then all of a sudden her energy level would go down and in the middle of the day she would hit a wall. And I kind of noticed that, but I think I was too young to really think of anything of it. And I think when I actually found out that mom was ill, uh, I had overheard her talking to my sister and then mom officially told me. Yeah, that, that, that topic of overhearing, kids have a special sense. They're always listening and I just learned that we need to be very communicative with them because if not, they get very anxious. So the importance of being straightforward, obviously speaking to their age, you know, so they can process it, is a practice I highly recommend. At first I was hiding it and they're smarter than what we think. So I would have them clingy and they would yes. want to come to bed every night. And I'm like, that's so weird. That never happened. And energetically, they just know. They just know something is off. Okay, so continue telling me you were... So he uh, went. He gave me a referral for a specialist, and I went to see the specialist, a lovely, lovely doctor here in town. He said, we don't know right now. There could be two or three things, but I think you need to have a liver biopsy. And of course, that kind of immediately went, oh boy, this is serious. And the moment I left, just like you said in a podcast before, I went to Dr. Google. <laughs> and, Dr. Google. Oh man, bad idea, though. <laughs> because I became a bundle of nerves or what it could be. So number one is I looked at the picture of the needle that is used for the biopsy because they insert a needle through your abdomen all the way into the, it's hollow, all the way into your liver. And it pulls out a specimen of your liver. And then what it could be. And I used to drink Coke Zeros a lot every day. And I remember I began to make bargains with God. Oh, my goodness. 
you know, my oldest daughter is married, but still it's going to be so hard if it's something really bad. But my little one, she's, you know, she's not even 11 yet. Um, so fear began. So I made a promise. Okay, dear Lord, if it is not, can if you make it not be cancer, I promise you'll never take an, another Coke Zero in my life again. And you I know think we should bargains? dig deep a little bit. The main religion in Latin America is Catholicism. There's this belief that if you make sacrifices, if you offer things, you will be rewarded. So, for example, in Lent, you're like, I won't eat chips or fries <laughs> for 40 days. And, you know, I will have this in, in exchange. So it's like a cultural thing, right? As if we can bargain with God. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> we know Latin people, we're known for bargaining and we don't exclude God. Even with God. <laughs> How did that bargaining go? Tell me. Oh, my goodness. I was in the in my vehicle. It was going to take a few days to get the results back. And uh, it was a Friday night at eight o'clock. And the call came in through my vehicle and I answered it. And it was the doctor himself. So immediately... My blood just ran to my feet. Literally, I felt like it, it rushed It rushed to my feet because I knew it wasn't going to be good news. And he said... Um, Were you alone? Yeah. And I said... Uh, I was heading home, actually. He said, how are you this evening? He's so polite. Uh, and I said, doctor, I don't mean to be rude. It's a cancer. And he said, no. And I immediately breathed. Uh -huh. And he said, but you have you know, what is, we all know as cirrhosis of the liver. Is that, and I'm going to explain a little bit, and please help me, we, we all need to understand what cirrhosis of the liver, not related to alcohol. Because Thank we you. all think, we all go straight to borracha, she must have been a drunk. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, there is a, with this diagnosis, there is a sense of, um, of a little bit of shame because you can see it in people's eyes. That immediately go, oh my goodness, she really likes the bottle. So I feel that when I tell people what I have, I have to immediately do the disclaimer. It's autoimmune. It's my own body attacking my bile ducts and it scarring my liver. It's not alcohol related. And then I feel like an, sort of like a little bit of an idiot for <laughs> feeling that I have to say it. And that condition, could you explain, like I explained in the book on the way to Casa Lotus, a little bit 101 on the adrenals. We, I mean, as I shared before, I thought when they told me I had a tumor in my adrenals, I thought it was in my, in my brain. I thought the adrenals were in my brain. <laughs> I had no clue of what those were. So please give us a little 101 on cirrhosis, liver, and autoimmune. Wonderful. And by the way, when you when I read your book and the po podcast, I thought the adrenals were on the on either side of the neck. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone, yeah. they sit atop of the kidneys, just so you can visualize them. We have two. <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, cirrhosis of the liver is a condition that is, as of today, is incurable, and it is progressive. So the only thing that you can do is manage it. You manage it by slowing down the disease. Fried foods, I have to stay away from them. Nothing spicy. No sugar. No sugar or very little sugar. And if it is, it's honey. Nothing spicy, jalapenos, anything hot, because it makes your liver work hard. And you see what happens with cirrhosis. Cirrhosis scars your liver. Think of rust. 
it rusts the liver. And whatever part gets rusted, is there's no one doing that. So what you want to do is you want to slow that process down as much as possible. So it's not reversible? No, ma'am. I've asked that question a few times. When I got diagnosed, there's four levels to cirrhosis, four stages. They go up to four. Cirrhosis, just my friend, so you can have an idea, imagine scars in your liver. Is mm -hmm. that a good way to describe it? That's exactly it? what it is. Okay. It's scar tissue. Scar tissue. And the part that gets scarred cannot function. Got so it. you're you're functioning with less percentage of the liver. It's the same thing that happens to alcoholics. They it scars the liver, whatever part scarred can no longer function to cleanse your blood and do everything that the wonderful liver does. And what about I'm learning, mm -hmm. I'm being vulnerable, my friends, but I'm, uh, I think that it's brave to ask and learn. I hear all the stories about if you chop part of the liver, the liver, you can still live. Is that right or no? Yes. Yes? That is, the liver is a wonderful organ that we have because it's able to regenerate itself. Mm -hmm. But the autoimmune cirrhosis, the, the problem is not the liver, actually. The problem with uh, the autoimmune type is that the problem is in the bile ducts. And the bile ducts begin to decay. And so the substances that are in your liver and the bile and all that cannot process or escape or leave or any of that. And staying in there is what causes the damage to the liver. You know, there's transplants, but as, um, transplants have to do with you get on a list, you can find a donor. I haven't, I didn't tell a lot of people about it, but the very few people, there was this little core group of girlfriends I had, and we went to pray and do the rosary up here in Austin at a little chapel. And I had two or three friends, actually three of them, offer me part of their liver, which, my gosh, how much much more generous than giving me a part of their body. The thing about it is, even with that, since the problem is autoimmune, is my system attacking itself. I think, frankly, to be honest with you, it was stress-related. I've always been always been the child who did not cry. Everybody would cry, uh, even um, during um, difficult times. You know, I lost my first husband. I'm, I would never been a crier, and I think it takes a toll on you if you kind of bottle things inside. Totally. As I've shared in the podcast, my friends, if you remember... When the spirit doesn't get it, it goes to emotions. When emotions doesn't get it, it goes to your body. So it's a very intelligent system to tell you, hey, you need to work on this. Sadly, it took me 40 years to learn this. And I think I would have been more gentle with myself, letting me feel. Mm -hmm. Like just knowing I cannot die by feeling pain. I was so afraid of emotional pain. So I just put a shield and I don't know if you share that experience or was it more about being the strong one? What what was it for you? For me, it was about being the strong one, to be honest with you. Um, you know, when you're 16, you're not fully mature. Your frontal lobe is still being built. Uh, so it was quite a shock to see people being shot, people you knew and cared about who work in your home being shot inside. Oh, the, the morning after Nicholas got shot, our floors were white, were uh, white marble, and he had bled. I had gone in the middle of the night to do a tourniquet. Mm -hmm. But to see it, one thing is to hear and do things in the dark where there's no electricity, but another one is to see the aftermath in the morning. And I lost friends, too. 
Um, so from that point, I remember I didn't even break down or cry at all until four months after. I was eating dinner one night and I started to cry and I didn't stop for about over a week. Then um, I married. Uh, I married young. One year, about a year after I was married, my husband had a stroke. And so I had to be the strong one. How old were you? In my 20s. Wow. 27, I think. Mm-hmm. I'd only been married a little over a year. And my husband, for over a year, could not walk, could not feed himself. The only way, once he refused the tube, the only way to feed him was to promote a gag, the gag reflex, mm-hmm. which humans never lose, I found out. Mm-hmm. So you put a spoon, long spoon in ice, and then you slowly put it in the back of the throat, and when he gags, you put a little bit of the food. Wow. But he preferred that to the tube in his stomach, and so it was a, a hard process. I had to be the strong one. Had you had your oldest child already? Yes, and she was little. She was in very little. And to me, most important, because I had to do for a couple of years just about everything for him. And what I mean is everything, bathing, hygiene, everything. Two things to me was very important because my yaya always taught me, you know, the worst thing that can happen to a human being is to lose their dignity. So I love my husband very much. And to me, it was really important that he didn't lose his dignity. I agree. So with I had you. to be strong. I had to be, but frankly, for a long time, I was freaked out. I was so young myself. And I hadn't been, I don't know, I hadn't been taught. But, you know, how do you teach that? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I started masking everything, masking feelings, you know. Um, and I think that's why I did it. And then it just became a habit. I'm the strong one. I can handle anything. Now, my husband, gratefully, they hadn't given him much. He lived 17 years. 17. You took care of him that way for 17 years? No, he began to walk. Okay. He still couldn't feel much on one side, but he was able to walk. There's a lot of things he couldn't do anymore. Mm-hmm. For example, he if he walked and you were behind him and called his name, he couldn't turn his head and walk. He had to stop and then turn his whole body. He didn't have feeling in a lot of... Is he your father as well? He is not, no. Um, he passed away before I was born. Okay. Yeah. And then he had a quadruple bypass and a tumor on his brain. Oh my gosh, you've been through a lot. Lorena Junco Margain, passionate art collector, devoted wife and mother, is already shaken after fleeing Mexico with her family while pregnant due to concerns for their safety. After arriving in her new home in Austin, Texas, she learns she has a tumor on her adrenal gland. Although not life-threatening, the condition is serious and requires surgery right away. Having long experienced unexplained symptoms of dizziness and lethargy that neither medications nor holistic or Ayurvedic treatments have helped, she embraces the news with tears of relief. With a simple surgery, she can regain her strength and joyful spirit. But fate can be mischievous, and to err is human, even for surgeons. Rather than improve after surgery, her condition worsens. On the way to Casa Lotus is the gripping true story of Hunka Margain's journey coming to terms with the permanent consequences of a surgeon's devastating mistake. Mindful that even good people make errors and that vengeance such as legal action would not mend her broken body or soul, she chooses instead to embark on a quest for peace and healing, beginning by seeking space in her heart to forgive. You can get your copy of On the Way to Casa Lotus on Amazon or at LorenaHuncoMargain.com.
energetically speaking, I'm curious, for example, I the adrenals take care of the flight or fight mechanism. Mm -hmm. And when we had to live in a such abrupt situation, if I have to connect, like, where did I get this condition from? It's also an autoimmune, but it created a tumor in my adrenal. I'm like, I fled. I think it's related to that feeling. So I went a lot in studying into the psychological effects in your organs. And they say the liver, that's where you store anger. Mm -hmm. Does that resonate? Yes. Look, when you're in your 20s and you have, you're imagining this life with this wonderful human being you married, you were so blessed to find and start a life. And all of a sudden, you have someone who can't even sit up without you. And at first you go, oh, we'll get through this. And then it begins to to settle that this is not short term. What I see now, after a few months, he's not going to get better past this point. And it's pretty and amazing because you see life still happens. Nothing stops. You know, the seasons still happen. Christmas, birthdays, school years. And you're still stuck. And that feeling is so difficult to process. And the thing is, you have a lot of support at first from family and friends and all that. But after a while, everybody goes back to their lives. And then you don't want to be a burden, right? Exactly. And you feel shame <laughs> that yes. it's like, if Tell I ask me about for help. shame, how did you feel shame? I felt shame that if I ever complained to anybody of how hard it was, that I was being fair to him, that I was putting him down if I complained. I must have been told by co-workers, people who knew us when we'd go out to dinner or anything, I must have been told at least 30, 40 times in our marriage, oh my gosh, you guys have the perfect marriage. I, we want what you guys have. And mind you, we had a lot of love and that never waned, ever. But there was a lot. I couldn't show how hard it was. And he was a most wonderful human being too. You know, so you can't you can't find fault who so, with someone who loves you, adores you, supports you. If you know, I've always, you don't want to feel ungrateful, right? Yes, and you know, I've I've owned a few businesses. Um, now I just opened my largest one, but he was such a you know that song, the wing, wind beneath my, my wings? wings. That's what he was to me. That's my dad's song. Really? Yes. That was him to me. He supported me unconditionally, no matter what, no matter what. And sometimes, you know, he knew what he was able to do and he wasn't. And he said, do you have any regrets? And my, my answer was always no, absolutely none. Was that true? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. And there was one time that I told him the truth. Yes, I have one regret. And our relationship changed forever at the end of our relationship. Can you share that or is it private? I can share it because I think it'll be great for Ella to hear this. Thank you. Ella, feel comfortable if you to say, I'm not ready. Whenever you can, you can say, I'm not ready. Remember, this is a safe place and you are the inspiration of everything because Isabella and I, as a mom, 
We want to empower our kids to know that they have a voice and that they should be able to feel, that they should be able to ask questions, cry, be angry, and not go through the processes that we're going through that is trying to hide everything and pretend that everything is okay because it's so harmful and it's not a good thing to teach to our kids. So please know that even if this is a little bit uncomfortable, you're working the muscle of forgiveness, of anger, of love, of gratitude. So all this is only building you up. But it's also healthy to say, I need to stop. That's also very important, okay? So you let us know and we stop. All right. Thank okay. you. So your boundaries mm -hmm. are sacred. So you just say, I don't want to not stop, okay? So a couple of decades into our marriage, he asked me the question. He'd asked many times, do you regret anything? You know, I'm getting older. I'm getting, you know, approaching middle age by then. And I said, yeah, one thing. And uh, he said, what? I said, I always wanted a second child. And I feel that hollow. Mm -hmm. I was too young and naive. He was older than I was, you know. And I didn't realize what he began to do the very next day. He began to step out of my life. He failed you. Is that what he felt? Yeah. But by then, you know, I was 40, you know. I thought my time was gone, was past, but he felt like he failed me so much. I, th I thought it was safe to say it because, hey, my biological clock is yeah. it's over. He quit working, but not to him. And he began to mentally, uh, emotionally, psychologically, and physically began to shut down. Did you go to therapy with him? What was your way to communicate? He was my best friend. Above all, he knew me and I knew him and we talked about everything. So when he began to shut down, I began to have panic attacks. I couldn't figure out what had happened. I, I wasn't putting two and two together. Mm -hmm. So I began to have panic attacks. I remember driving on Mopac one day. I had to call the ambulance thinking I was having a heart attack only to find out, oh, you're having an anxiety attack. And I went, what, me? Mm -hmm. No, I could feel my heart. It was about to stop. Because I think there's a cultural connotation on accepting we have panic attacks. Right? Yes. It's like, don't tell anybody. But I, I've also had to just park somewhere and breathe and just pull out my essential oil and inhale it in. I'm alive. It's okay. Process it. You're okay. St stabilize. But it's a lot. And it's pretty saddening to know that Talking about Mopac, how many are we driving through Mopac, having deep breaths <laughs> and worrying about our next steps? And some of us in survival mode, some of us saving someone or someone going to their extra work shift so they can pay the rent. So it's amazing. We all need to, to vent. If not, the anxiety attacks just paralyze you. Yeah. And you're right. For a, for a few years, I had to have two jobs in order to make sure that private schools were paid and, you know, everything was taken care of. But so he had always we had had some therapy after his stroke, you know, and then sometimes we had uh, therapy with a beautiful Monsignor who we went to to the church we went to. And he they helped us between the therapists, you know, how to manage post-stroke marriage. And so on and so forth. But this time I said, 
You don't, you know, you've shut down. I can't deal with this. You're my best friend. What did I do? And he says, you didn't do anything. I'm not shut down. And this time I said, let's go to therapy. And he said, no. And then I said, well, let's go see Monsignor. And Monsignor was also our friend. Was he close to his dying years or was this early yes. on? He was. But when this started, he died within three and a half years, three years. Mm -hmm. But he shut down before. And uh, I reached the point of, uh, I used to do once a year when my daughter was old enough. I used to do once a year, I would go to Key West, get a hotel room, and I wouldn't speak for a week. I like to talk a lot, you know? So this was my resetting every year. Yes. And so I would take a notepad, go to the restaurant, write down. People thought I was a mute or deaf, which is, it works fine. Who cares? But when I would come back, I would feel wonderful. Which is very important doing your resets, at least every six months. Ooh. Yes. Okay. I uh, actually, my book on the way to Casa Lotus, one of the endorsers is uh, Katerina Hedberg. She started the ashram in California. Ooh. And you go there for a week. And the only thing you do is hike. So it's like a very cathartic process. They encourage silence, mm -hmm. but with movement. And it's such a healing experience. I highly recommend that. Thank you. I, yes. I have to look up her name in your book uh, yes. to, to make contact. To me, the water, I carry aquamarine is my stone. Water is my happy place. Mm -hmm. Here in Austin, up until a few days ago, I lived close to the water. The beach, I grew up near the beach. So, so to what be... are our emotions? Oh, okay. So there it makes, oh man, you. I guess I needed it without realizing why I was doing it. I was just being driven to be near the water. Because body is so smart that it naturally tells you. I remember Patty, my second one. So you have the elements, right? Mm -hmm. Fire, water, air. air, earth, and ether. Patty would always arrive from kindergarten and be naked. And I was like, hi, mamacita, please, you know, what are you doing? You're going to catch a cold. And then Renu, my astrologer and Ayurvedic practitioner, she told me, human bodies are so smart. She's cooling down on her own. And if, if you put more layers on her, you're just creating a wildfire. And she threw tantrums. And when I let her be like loose, she was a beautiful, like warm tea. You know, cuddly, uh -huh. happy. And then Lore, my oldest one, she always has, like me, one layer over the other, over the other, because she needs that water, that that heat. I'm, a, I'm also a water person. Emotions, your body shape and mine are very similar. Yeah. We're very rounded. Mm -hmm. That's very watery. And wow. then you, you can start learning about anatomy and you can see, okay, fire person, earth person, and that totally connects to their personality. So I will connect you with the right resources to understand body types because they'll speak on their own. It's amazing. Wow. Yes. So I want to continue a little bit back to the autoimmune condition. Mm -hmm. Is that hereditary? Do you have the fear of Ella dealing with it? Or is, do you think it's something that you just have it because of your stress? I think I have it because of my stress. No one in my family has any autoimmune disease. I have very good DNA. <laughs> There's no cancer in my family. There is some diabetes, but that's because of lifestyle more mm -hmm. so than genetics. And uh, there was stroke, but also again in, in an uncle, but that had to do with 
being um, morbidly obese and so on. But other than that, I'm the only one that I know of. And one thing the doctor told me, I said, sometimes autoimmune comes in pairs. And a year later, I got diagnosed with a second one. Which is? Rheumatoid arthritis, which is, to me, a mean-spirited because you don't look sick. I have rheumatoid arthritis. And you're in pain most of the time. And the doctor gave me, I have a cane in the car because sometimes I'm walking normal, but sometimes I can barely take a step or even get out of. You get looks from people and they'll see, the same person will see me with a cane for three or four days. And then they'll see me the next time and I'm running because I'm running behind. But they don't see those days where I can't get out of bed. And then don't you feel like Peter and the wolf, like, Now they won't believe you because there's a wolf coming. They're like, yeah, she's in pain. Look at her. She's in a, she's partying. And it's a real thing. It's an inflammatory process. That's why I call it means spirited. <laughs> because, I love it. Yeah. Yeah, because you have it. You know how the effect and the pain that you feel uh, in your body or sometimes you just walk in and you feel the pain and the pain is in your foot and it hurts with every step, but you just don't tell anyone But sometimes when you're bad, sometimes when it's really bad, people go, wait a minute. I like what you said, the crying wolf. It, I almost feel that people think that that's what I'm doing. Yeah. And I, I also learned, you know, I started carpooling because every time I went and picked up my kids at school, someone would be like, now what? And I, I would feel terrible because I was this squeaky, squeaky wheel, you know, that... And I'm like, gosh, how, how do people live? And honestly, now that I've been, quote, fixed, where I'm in a better, stable condition, I had forgotten what being alive meant. And I the book gave me that. Wow. Yes. So I invite you to journal and I'll eventually help you thread those notes. Because when your spirit is doing well, you don't care about pain. You just push on. I love that. Yes. Uh, I love that. I've been in prednisone. I just got off of it. A, a matter of, t the tapering was ugly, but I was on it for a couple of years and I went from, it's made me more humble. From age 16 to age 45, before I had Ella, I was a size two or size four all my life. Wore two-piece bathing suits. And all of a sudden, Once these diseases and the steroids and all of it to keep me healthy, my I went up four sizes. So my ego took another hit. I know. Oh, my God. And my hair began to fall out. And your self-esteem down the drain. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Um, so it's a very humbling way of doing it. So I'm going to be hat very vulnerable. You. Look at my pants. <laughs> Okay. All right. Since we're be I'm but I have unbuttoned jeans. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was vulnerable too then. <laughs> I wear elastic now. Yes, me too. So this is a thing, my friends listening. We also need to be mindful, and that's I've been working with Elizabeth Elias. She's one of my dearest friends, and we in our last episode we spoke about the importance of being gentle to your body on putting clothes that are serving you and not wanting to look pretty. The only way to look pretty is having a big smile. Let go of those expectations of the person you were before. Just honor your body and listen to it. And 
I invite you to listen to that podcast. And so thank you for sharing that. But yes, I think there's more people in this world wearing comfortable clothes around their abdomen that we know. <laughs> <laughs> thank God I don't feel so alone. Thanks for listening to On My Way with Lorena Hunko Magain. We'd like to invite you to send us your thoughts and any questions from this podcast by emailing Lorena at LorenaHuncoMargain.com. You can also reach out to us directly through our website by clicking the link in the show description of this podcast. Special thanks to executive producer Casey Helmick, studio engineer Joseph Olguin, audio and video editor Scott Caro. This podcast is a production of Terra Firma and recorded from the historic Arlen Studios in Austin, Texas. 